Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. And so today we are going to be talking about prayer, and, um, and I've been encouraged as I've been watching our Ukrainian brothers and sisters are rallying together to be the church and to pray together. So we're going to be di- diving into Matthew chapter 6 this afternoon and looking at what is probably, for most of us, a very familiar passage of Scripture, the Lord's Prayer. If you have been a part of a church growing up, you may have even committed this to memory. But we're going to be camped out there and I'm going to be bouncing around a few other places uh, but before we get there, I just wanted to um, speak to an objection that uh, you may have felt as we've been going through this series called The Way, Lives Ordered Around the Way of Jesus. This series isn't so much about the teaching of Jesus, but the way that Jesus lived his life, his life style, the things that he did, the practice that, practices that he participated in. And one of the things that you might have thought as you've been thinking about this is, well, how much of Jesus' lifestyle should we copy? Like how much of what he did and how he lived should we be modeling ourselves on? Like, for example, no one has turned up to church this afternoon with a Middle Eastern gown and leather sandals on. And I mean, you know, like perhaps if that is your cultural background, you might. But there are certain things about the life of Jesus that we don't copy, that we don't model ourselves on. And I think the difference between the things that we are called to follow and the things that we aren't is this. There's a difference between Jesus' cultural lifestyle and his theological lifestyle. So the things that are a part of Jesus' cultural lifestyle is the clothes that he wore, the food that he ate, the language that he spoke. Jesus spoke Aramaic most most likely, perhaps he was multilingual. He may have spoken a bit of Greek and a bit of... He definitely would have spoken Hebrew. Um, We don't... We don't do those things, but the theological parts of Jesus' life, his life of prayer, his commitment to the scriptures, living in the power of the spirit, those are things that scripture emphasizes over and over and over again. You see, Jesus is the embodiment of the son of God, right? Israel was God's child. Israel was supposed to be God's people who walked obediently before the Lord. They failed at that. And Jesus came as the true Israelite walking obediently before the Lord. And so you get that that encounter in Luke chapter 4 as Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days as a representative of Israel who was spent 40 years wandering the wilderness, right? Jesus walks obediently before the Father. His life is one that is worth following. I'll give you an example of this tension between cultural lifestyle and theological lifestyle. Jesus discipled how many disciples? How many disciples did Jesus have in his posse? Twelve. And then he had like three close ones, Peter, James, and John, his three little homies within the twelve that he spent extra time with. And so the question is, well, when we make disciples, do we have to find 12 people to follow us and then invest in three of those like is that a a prescriptive paradigm that we all have to follow and i want to suggest to you know even though some would say yes but my suggestion is that the principle behind that is that jesus invested in people and he discipled 
people. He helps people know what it looks like to walk obediently before God. And he did that life on life, life in community, and practicing life on mission together. That's the principle behind it. And so there's a distinction between the cultural lifestyle of Jesus and the theological lifestyle. So with that in mind, we're going to dive into prayer today and look at the prayer life of Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a look at the Word of God. Father, we thank you that you speak to us. And we thank you that we get to pray to you. Because that is a staggering reality, that we can pray and you would listen, the creator of the universe. That you are so intimately concerned about the small details of our life and about global political circumstances in our world. You're a God who cares. We thank you that we can come to you as Father. So I pray now as we come before you in your word that you would speak to us. For every person who is here today in this room, God, I pray that you would help us to be inspired today to walk deeper with you, to go deeper in communion, to know what it looks like to live a life of prayerful dependence on you. And we pray this all now in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You know, prayer is only possible because of what Jesus has done. That's a pretty basic statement, right? The only reason that we can pray is because Jesus has made a way. He has opened access to the Father. The, the curtain temple has been torn. The presence of the Lord is here we have access to God because of what Jesus has done. Tim Keller says that prayer is an ongoing conversation that God started. I love that. An ongoing conversation that God started. Prayer is a response to the loving initiative of the Father. Prayer is a response to the gracious self-revelation of God's character and who He is. We would not have known who He was if He had not revealed himself to us prayer is an ongoing conversation with god that he started and it is only possible because of jesus so as we look at the life of jesus we see very clearly in the gospels that he prayed and he prayed a lot he prayed for wisdom before he chose the 12 disciples he prayed when he was busy Jesus was never too busy that he couldn't make time in his life and his day to pray. He prayed when he experienced suffering. He prayed for himself. He prayed for obedience to God's will. If you remember that narrative in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, just before Jesus goes to the cross, what does he do? He prays, God, I'm wrestling over what it means to walk to the cross. Would you help me take this cup from me? Yet not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus also prayed for you. I don't know if you realize that. He prayed for you. Later this year, we're going to be in a series, both City and Southwest and Northern Beaches, actually, will be in a series called The Upper Room as we examine the prayer of Jesus, the high priestly prayer of Jesus for his church and his people. Jesus prayed. In fact, he prayed a lot. Luke chapter 5, verse 16 says this, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This was Jesus' pattern, his habit, his life was about 
prayer. And he did this regularly. Read through the Gospels. You'll see how often Jesus retreats from the crowds, retreats from the disciples, and heads to a solitary place, a lonely place to pray. Or Luke chapter 6, verse 12. On one of those days, Jesus went up to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. He prayed all night long. The one thing that the disciples came to Jesus and said, Teacher, would you tell us, would you teach us how to perform miracles? It wasn't that. You imagine after the feeding of the 5,000, right? Jesus takes five loaves of bread, two fish, multiplies it, feeds 5,000 people. like, Master, could you teach me how to do that? Because that could be a very lucrative business deal. You know, fishing's expensive. It's hit and miss. How many fish could I, right? They don't teach us how to perform miracles. They don't say, could you teach us your teaching pattern? Because everyone is amazed at your teaching. I want to be a teacher like you. You know, the only thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them was how to pray. Was how to pray. And in Luke chapter 11, the disciples come, teacher, how should we pray? And he gives them the Lord's Prayer as their paradigm and scaffolding for prayer. Such was the attractive quality of Jesus' life of prayer that they wanted to know how to do that for themselves. Now, there really is no other spiritual practice in the life of Jesus that is more prominent than prayer. That is the one thing that jumps out at us from the pages of the New Testament. If we are to examine the lifestyle of Jesus, it is prayer. And so as we think about the way lives ordered around the life of Jesus, if we are going to be a people who learn to love and live like him, that's our definition of a disciple, someone who's learning to love and live like Jesus, prayer has to be essential. So how does prayer make us more like Jesus? That's the question I want to answer this afternoon. I'm going to use the Lord's Prayer to help us frame and answer that. So here it is. Let's go back to the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You'll notice the Lord's Prayer there starts with a profound word. Our Father. In Greek, the word is pater. In Aramaic, it's Abba. And this is an intimate word. It's like saying Papa or Dada. Uh, this, is the, this is the type of language that Jesus gives his followers, the disciples, to pray. We have access to God, so much so that we can call him Father. And this is because of our baptismal identity. We've been baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is because of our union with Christ. We've been made co-heirs alongside of Christ. We stand to inherit the kingdom of God. We have been adopted into the family of God by virtue of our union with Christ. And this is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, whom Paul will say in Galatians 4 verse 6, that God has sent the Spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Such is the access that we have, our Father. 
Like just, just that reality in itself, that we get to pray to the God of the universe, like the God who spoke existence into being. And we get to talk to him as father. But more than that, by, by instructing us to pray, to address God as Father, Jesus is actually inviting us into the same experience of intimacy that he himself enjoyed with God. That's crazy. That Jesus says, pray like I pray, my Father. That reality ought to knock our socks off. That we get to pray to God as Father. Such is the privilege of the sons and daughters of the king. Paul puts it this way. In Romans 8.15, he says this, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about our adoption to sonship. That is, that concept there is that we have been given the title of firstborn, the heir of the whole family's estate, right? We have been given a a spirit that has brought about our adoption to being heirs, to being firstborns. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And do you know what that means? It means that God is not indifferent to our prayers. It means that God is not apathetic every time you call out to him and get on your knees and pray. He listens. He's our father. He hears. I love that image from Psalm 116 where it said, God bends his ear towards the prayers of his people. He leans down to listen. When we open our mouths, believe it or not, the God of the universe hears and is interested in what you are saying crazy that is incredible but that is the privilege of being able to call god father you know jesus prayed to god as father around 70 times or addressed god as father around 70 times in the gospels and yet there was one time that he didn't and the one time that jesus didn't call out to god as father was from the cross where he said my god my god Why have you forsaken me? Now, I'm not really sure what the theological point of that is, but what I do know is that the only reason that you or I could possibly call God Father is because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of his death in our place. And N.T. Wright, he calls it this. He calls it a cheeky celebration of God's grace. Who are we? Who are we to think that we could approach the throne of grace and say, Abba, Daddy, a cheeky celebration of God's grace. In prayer, we enjoy relationship with the Father. This is relational. It's not a transaction between us and God, right? Like a vending machine. You put money in, you press A3, the twisties come out, right? That's not what prayer is. Prayer is about relationship with the Father. It's about knowing him communing with him and i want to say that the extent to which we grasp and understand our adopted privilege to call god father will be the extent to which christ is formed in us 
because to be God's beloved child is the truest statement that you can say about yourself. That is what we were created for, relationship with God, to be called his children. And so as we embody that and embrace that, we are embracing our truest identity. And it is there, in the presence of the Father, that we realize our true selves and enjoy intimacy with God, communion with God. Now, how different is that picture of prayer than, you know, just rattling through a shopping list of things that we want to get off our chest and it's about enjoying friendship with God. It doesn't require you to wake up at 5 a.m. It doesn't require you to do anything other than, you know, verbalize vocally or internally, talk to God and enjoy friendship and communion and intimacy with him. Prayer forms us because it helps us live and enjoy the privilege of being called God's children. Secondly, your will be done. Matthew 6 verse 10 says this, your, will, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By inviting us to pray these lines of the Lord's Prayer, your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done. God is not only calling us to pray higher than just our ambitions and our dreams and our kingdom. Of course he's doing that. He's like, so there's something bigger than your dreams and ambitions. But he's also, he's also inviting us to be a part in what he is doing in the world. The, um, the theologian Frank LeBach said that the Lord's Prayer is not just to be prayed, it's to be lived. It's enlistment. We are called into it. You know, for so long, I used to think that um, my prayers were, were me trying to convince God that my ideas of what should happen is what he should be doing in the world, right? So God, would you please do this? You need to do this. This person's life is a mess. Could you fix them? Can you save this person? The world's broken. You know, and, and so my prayers were me trying to convince God that my plans really were the way that the world should be playing out. When in fact, Jesus all along has been reminding us in the Lord's Prayer that my prayer, that prayer is actually about God's plans becoming my plans. That's what prayer is about. That God's will becomes my will. That God's dreams become my dreams. God's plans and purpose must always predicate our prayers, always come before our requests. Richard Foster says this about prayer. He says, prayer involves transformed passions in prayer, real prayer. We begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire the things that he desires, to love the things that he loves, and to will the things that he wills. And if that's not a definition of Christ-likeness, I don't know what is. The passions, the desires, the will of God. Jesus is so aligned with the Father's will. Prayer, like the Lord's Prayer that we see here, is prayer that reframes and reshapes our desires and our dreams and our affections. And, they, and we get drawn into what God is doing in the world. So a really simple way of, of living this out and practicing this is to simply, rather than, you know, getting your shopping trolley of requests and like ramming it against the gates of heaven, is to say, God, what are you doing? 
What are you doing in my workplace? Who are you nudging in my family? What's happening on my street, God? Are there any neighbors in my street that are, that are suffering? And do you want me to help them? That's the type of adventure that the Lord's Prayer calls us into, into being a partner with God in what He is doing in the world because He is at work. He is already at work in people's lives. He is already at work in your workplace. He's already at work in your family. And the Lord's Prayer enlists us into the things that God is already doing. And we get to pray, God, show me what you want me to do. I'm available. Thirdly, Give us this day, forgive us our sins, and lead us not into temptation. Verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Those three things are requests and expressions of need, of dependence. Everything from the smallest details of our life to the food that we'll eat to the most significant thing that we could possibly ever ask God for, the salvation of our souls. All of those things are God's to give and ours to receive in prayer. And so prayer is an expression of trust and dependence and humility. When we pray, we're not only declaring God is in control of all things, We're actually participating in and practicing the reality that we're not. What a reminder that when we get on our knees to ask God for our daily necessities, our daily needs, or the salvation of our neighbors and family and friends, that is an expression that we cannot do this ourselves and our prayers begin to shape us and foster dependence and humility. Psalm 10 verse 4 says this, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. My good friend and uh, pastor Adam Ramsey from Liberty Church on the Gold Coast uh, has written a book called Truth on Fire. And he says this in the book. He says, perhaps for many of us, the greatest indicator of pride in our hearts is not the presence of boasting, but the absence of prayer. Kind of stings that one, doesn't it? Perhaps for many of us, the greatest indicator of pride in our hearts is not the presence of boasting off our lips, but the absence of prayer. Prayerlessness is pride, but prayer alternatively is humility and dependence and trust and faith. You see, prayer forms us. The the Lord's Prayer is like scaffolding, an infrastructure that helps us know what the shape of our prayers should be. But prayer forms us. As we pray, we, we enjoy the privilege of being adopted as God's children and we experience intimacy with our Father. As we pray, we recognize that God not only changes the world, but He changes us and invites us into partnership with Him. And as we pray, we cultivate faith and trust, and humility in our lives. So how do we grow in prayer? What does it look like to do that? Well, I love this quote from A.W. Tozer who says this about prayer. Prayer cannot be taught. It can only be done. 
the best any school or any book or any sermon can do is to recommend prayer and exhort to its practice. Praying itself must be the work of the individual. Praying itself must be the work of the individual. How do you grow in prayer? You do it. That's it. You pray. Now, for you, prayer might be something relatively new. You think, well, I'm, I'm quite new to the faith. Um, I don't really know how to do this. I still remember uh, for many years I was a youth pastor at a large multi-ethnic church in Rudy Hill. And um, one of the guys who was on our youth leadership team taught at uh, one of the schools out the back in the housing commission estates in the back of Mount Druitt and would bring kids along from, from school to youth group all the time. And one of these kids, I think his name was Declan, uh, he became a Christian and um, very, very early on in his journey of faith, we were sitting with a bunch of year 11 and 12 boys and um, he prayed and he said, uh, hey God, it's me, Declan, and I'm here with Steve and Jojo and Marlon and this is Matt. And it was such a beautiful prayer because I was like, you know what? It's probably the first time this kid has ever prayed in his life. And I tell you what, God was so chuffed when he heard that kid pray like that. You know, God, God does not mind our squiggled prayers. You know, back to front, upside down, messed up. He just loves the fact that we pray. So no matter where you're at, if prayer is something new for you, or if you're at the other end of the spectrum, you're like you're a seasoned saint and the, the prayer room is like the best place on earth for you and you have worn holes in your knees from praying, we can go deeper. We can enjoy the promises of prayer. And I want to suggest that the best way that you can do that is to do a practice, a habit, a discipline called the daily office. Now, I know that Alnado has spoken to you about the daily office before, but if you're unfamiliar, the, the daily office looks like this. It looks like pausing three to four times a day, morning, midday, evening, morning, midday, evening, and then night, just before you go to bed. Pausing for anywhere between two to 20 minutes and doing the following things, starting your time with some silence. And the point of silence is to remind ourselves that in the chaos and busyness and relentless information that just gets poured into the parts of our brains that process information, that we need to stop and be still before God and breathe in and slow down enough to let our awareness become present, our awareness be tuned into the presence of God, to sit in silence. And then to read a psalm, and then to respond and reflect and pray and worship God in response to that psalm, and then to sit in silence again, four times a day. To do that, if you did that every day for the next 66 days, science will tell you that you will form a new habit. A new habit takes anywhere between 18 to 265 days to form. That's what science tells us, depending on how difficult the habit is. But if you chose to do the daily office every day for two minutes every time, pause, reflect, read a psalm, silence, move on with your day, I promise you, you will build a habit and pattern of prayer and you will enjoy communion with the Father. There's a promise from James chapter 4, verse 8. And it's foolish of us to claim a promise that God never made, right? If God doesn't make a promise, don't claim it, right? 
but it's equally as foolish to not claim a promise that God has made. Here's a promise. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If you want to know what it looks like to enjoy abiding prayer, communion with our Father, then practice the daily office, or whatever your prayer habit is, so that we can be people who truly walk in the way of Jesus and know what it looks like to call God Father. I'm going to pray for us as the band comes up. God, we, we are blown away at the fact that we get to say a prayer, call you Father, and that you hear. What a beautiful truth that is, God. And yet so often at times, prayer for us feels like a duty, a chore, a task. Perhaps people in the room today are feeling like, I'm just not sure if God answers my prayers. People wrestling with unanswered prayers. Maybe even some who have just not prayed in a long time. Father, would you draw us back in with the promise of communion, of friendship, of intimacy with you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have made a way for us to experience your presence, your grace, your mercy. And I pray that you would form us as a prayerful people, a people who would know what it looks like to enjoy our adopted privilege as sons and daughters of the King. God, we love you. And we want to be a people who enjoy you. So please take us deeper. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.